Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 177. My guests for today's episode are Kathleen and Ronald Bird. Kathleen and Ronald live in Berlin, Germany. I was introduced to their story through my friend and the best friend of my partner, Sarah McInerney. Sarah is a singer, and Kathleen, who's one of our two guests, conducts the English Choir Berlin. And so Sarah had told me that Kathleen and Ronald had sailed around the world, and she told me some of their stories, and I was like, this aligns perfectly with the type of thing that I want to promote and share on the podcast. So I won't get too far into the, into the weeds here, because they do a great job of storytelling, far better than I could tell their story. But essentially, Kathleen and Ronald mostly left most aspects of their life behind, and they went sailing all over British Columbia, Central and South America, French Polynesia, and they've amassed an incredible wealth of stories. I couldn't help but think the entire time, like, man, this could... This could definitely play out in a movie. This could be a best-selling memoir or a novel. Uh, I would love to see that happen because these stories are, are, are really great and they really got me excited to you know, get out and see the world again once things open up. So thanks so much to Sarah for making that connection and thank you to Kathleen and Ronald for, for joining today. If you go to the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to the blog that we you know, referenced a number of times in this conversation. Ronald kept, it's kind of like a, a ship's log almost of things that were happening, but then also specifically things that were happening to their sailboat over the 10 years. And it's really fascinating. So make sure you go to the show notes and you check that out. You can spend a considerable amount of time reading through that. It's really cool. And also in the show notes for this episode, you will find a link, as always, to my Patreon account. That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and you can get some cool kickbacks. But if you're not able to support that way, word of mouth, telling a friend about this, that goes a really long way. And this is an episode with uh, some really cool and entertaining stories that I think everybody would like. So make sure you spread it around. All right, Voyagers. Enjoy my conversation with Kathleen and Ronald Bird. I'm really happy to get to, to chat with you both, so so thank you. Yeah. Cool. So I'm wondering where on your journey to start. Now, I think maybe we take it all the way back to, to where you're both from, because you're not originally from Germany. Is that correct? No. Go ahead. I'm, I'm, I was uh, brought up in a suburb of Baltimore. Hmm. And I was actually born in San Antonio, Texas. But, um, and then I came to Germany as a 19-year-old student and, uh, and was here for about a year and a half and then went back to the States and then I moved back over here uh, in 1982. And Ron, you're from? I was in Frankfurt. Not in Berlin, but Frankfurt. Oh, okay. I have I have family near Frankfurt. I don't know if you're familiar with Kelkheim. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, yeah, my, my dad's cousin and her husband live in Kelkheim. It's where my dad's mother was born and, and lived for, you know, her, her child years. Oh, wow. yeah, you're German, too. I mean, you have German background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're originally from, from Canada, Ron, is that correct? I'm, yeah, I was born in uh, Niagara Falls, Ontario, and grew up in a village nearby. And then at university, I I signed on to the military, and they paid my way through university. And then I had to serve for several years afterwards, which was in Western Canada or in the Arctic. And then they sent me over to Westphalia, so uh, near Dortmund. And the Canadians had um, active troops there before the wall came down as part of the NATO. So I was an artillery officer and missile officer. And then, of course, the main reason to change your venue is either uh, money or love. And in this case, it was money. Uh, no, wrong. Love. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, met somebody, married, left the army, did a second degree in London. And then 71, I came back out with my then German wife. And, uh, yeah, basically I've been based in Germany ever since 1971. Mm. So, so right now I think there's a lot of Americans who are looking to jump ship because things are, are pretty rough here right now. Uh, what is it, you know, that, that I'm, I'm sure you've built a life there, but, but what is it that keeps you both in Germany? What attracts you to Germany? Oh, Kathy, that's a good one for you. <laughs> well, I mean, everything, let's say, but the culture, there's so much music, like in Berlin particularly, there are three opera uh, companies, there's hundreds and hundreds of choirs, there's uh, basically almost everyone you meet in this city is an artist of some kind or another, is a painter or an actor or acrobat or something, you know, and it's just just this high regard for culture in Germany is uh, something that attracts me. But also, you can live here without a car. Mm. And I've never had a car in all these decades of living in Germany. You just get around on the super public transportation and your bicycle. And also, Germany is loaded with green parks and cafes and restaurants. And they just have a, a, a much higher quality of life, if you ask me, than in America. I mean, the list goes on and on. You know, they have many more vacation days. There's no such thing as you're only you're sick for ten days and then you you have to go to work because you don't get paid otherwise. There's nothing like that. This is very good taking care of people. Social net and everything is excellent. So there's uh, many many reasons that why it's great here. Yeah, you know, I would imagine from the little bit that I know about you both, uh, and through through reading through the the sailing blog a bit, that that type of lifestyle maybe suits you better. That maybe if if you had a mission statement for your life, it would be to to live a full life full of experiences and adventures rather than one, you know, seeking material things and and wealth. Is is that true? <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay. Well, the nail in the head. <laughs> Kathy is very, she's very, uh, she likes to travel. She like, I remember when we first went on the boat and she said, 
and it was actually her idea. Then and, and I said, "What are you suggesting? You don't know anything about boats." She says, "I know, but I like to travel and I can swim." <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm not afraid of water. So, and then I mean, there were times when it was fairly rough, but uh, and uncomfortable, and so on. But you know, she's a real trooper, and uh, we kept it going. And it was just for several reasons we gave it up. If we want to get into that, but we both decided we wanted to come back to Germany. We had quite a few, if you can go anywhere in the world, it's actually a very difficult decision because most people say, oh, I'd go where it's warm. But it's usually only, it's warm for half of the year and then it's either bloody hot or bloody cold the other half of the year. And not many places have a perfect uh, climate. I would say Venezuela has a perfect, perfect climate, but you might not want to go there. Yeah, right now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but we both decided, well, since we're both so German, we still have a lot of friends here, but we wanted big city life and we wanted intensive music, not just kind of singing on the boat, but we're both uh, performers and it was uh, important that you have that kind of concentration and high level of, of uh, audiences and colleagues and so on. And then mix it with the big city life and you've got Berlin. Gotcha. So, Ron, you had a history then with sailing. You were already proficient, I guess, and had done this earlier in life as well? I, uh, I grew up on the Great Lakes, so I had a lot of small boat experience. Uh, you know, rowboats, dinghy bo- dinghies, uh, um, but not sailing. And when I was in the Army, uh, I was the administrative officer of a unit, a Canadian unit, and a thing came across my desk saying that the, the British Army of the Rhine Sailing Club on the Mernesee uh, was going to be running a two-week course to train instructors. So I just submitted my name. <laughs> and that was the first sailing I did. So I learned how to sail on a dinghy on, the, on a reservoir in Germany, Central Germany. But then, um, you know, I did, a, I did a, a course. Oh, I got a certificate from that. And then many years, and then I did sailing like uh, two week chartering a small sailboat in the Mediterranean, in around Greece, around Yugoslavia, as that was. So, you know, I got a little bit of experience. And uh, maybe I did six weeks of that. So, which is a fairly long time. Most people don't spend that much time uh, sailing. So, that was over a couple of years. And then a lot of things happened, and I got away from it. And then Kathy. It was time for a big change in my life. And uh, my other career had kind of ended, and uh, we were both ready for something new. So Kathy made the suggestion, no, oh, you always wanted to be on a sailboat by the time you're 55. And here it is past. Uh, so, oh, yeah, you're right. I wonder if that's possible. I don't have any money. So, But I started looking online for boats, and boats are not that expensive. If you buy a used boat, I mean, the about the price of, uh, you know, a moderate-sized boat, we're talking like 10 meters or 35 feet, you can buy a, a boat for the price of a good used car. You know? wow. And if you're, if you're skilled and you can do a lot of the work yourself, you can even get, a, uh, get it a bit cheaper, get a little fixer-upper and work on it and do it. But it's a question of where you're going to go. We couldn't afford to have a, an apartment and a boat. So, and we had decided we were going to um, you know, basically sail around the world. And 
So I looked in various things. We were in Germany. I looked in various corners where boats were for sale in the early days of computers, brokerages. And Florida had by far the most, but I was worried about sun and uh, storm damage to boats there. And I finally, the next highest group seemed to be in the Pacific Northwest. So that's where we went and we found a boat. Also, Florida is in the hurricane zone and we wanted to avoid it. So there's no point in getting a boat in a place that has hurricanes. So that's why we didn't go to Florida <laughs> looking at all Philly. But you did go, well, maybe I'll, I'll put a pin in that for a second and I'll try to do this maybe chronologically. Uh, once you got the boat, where was the first uh, like major destination? And was the idea to stay in places for a while and, and, and work and then move on? Well, you, I mean, well, we bought, the, we bought this boat in, uh, I guess it was around August of 2001. And it was uh, in Port Townsend, Washington, which is north of Seattle. And there's a lot of water and islands and all kinds of places to go sailing also in uh, the Gulf islands of Canada. But, and my parents came to visit us and happened to arrive on September 10th of 2001, where we just had the boat for a month and we were going to go up to these islands. And then the, the morning, so they stayed in a, in a hotel the night before and the morning of September 11th, that's when, you know, the news was hitting everybody and we still went out for the day, but then because of that, uh, we couldn't go into Canada because they didn't have any passports or anything. And plus I think we didn't have our boat papers yet totally or something. So we, we, uh, um, just kind of went to a few islands in Washington state and then, but our first big thing really was going to Alaska. Wow. And because the boat at the time had the hailing port of Juneau, Alaska, we thought, well, we're going to go up to Juneau at least and see what it looks like. So, but that we did in April later the next year, 2002. And we did, we went up there for about a four month trip and back. But you can answer more. If you want. I wanted, I, <laughs> what I wanted to say was that I think to get us going, we, we finally committed to spending money, buying a boat. Uh, but our first ring said, we're going to do this for at least two years. So we're not going to go out there and then somebody gets cold feet and said, oh, I'm missing my television or something. So we said, we agreed it would be for two years and then as long as it was fun. So we spent two years, the first two years in kind of protected waters like from Puget Sound to Alaska, they have their big challenges, but uh, maybe currents and the rocks, rocks are a big challenge. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, but we, after the end of the two years, we've been in Alaska, we've been living on the boat for two years. That was the important part. Can you live on the boat together and look after it? And is that a lifestyle that you want? This kind of unconnected Bedouin uh, lifestyle. And at the end of two years, um, we sat down and we said, well, it's been two years. Are we sailing to California now or not? And then once you leave, once you leave, you, it's very hard to get back because all the currents and the winds are quite contrary to coming back to that part of the world. You have to sail to Hawaii and then back. So anyway, so yes, we're both keen for it. And our first 
and make offshore passage was after two years, we sailed in a week, uh, 130 miles offshore, we sailed the Meridian down to San Francisco. And that was a big change because we had probably the roughest weather we'd had in all our 10 years on the boat. It was it's a stormy coastline, the Oregon coast, and uh, we were pretty shaken uh, that find that we're this was our first trip uh, offshore, and we're being thrown around in the boat, and uh, you know have to you know haul down sail and drift at night, and yeah, and then I remember uh, as a little side story, we had two crewmen, so we were kind of the boat was pretty crowded. We had two guys go with us. We didn't have automatic uh, rudder or uh, steering, so we needed, you know, people to take shifts. And they, if two people, it's, it's too exhausting for two people alone to have to sit in the cockpit and steer. You have to have some sort of automatic steering. Anyway, so I remember we crawled into, I crawled, I came off watch, crawled into the, the forecastle at the front of the boat, and we were going to sleep on the sails for this one-week trip. Well, in fact, this, we are shaking so much, the sails were on top of us, basically. And uh, I asked, I said to Kathy, are you awake? She said, yes. And I said, what do you think? And she said, I'm just repeating the 23rd Psalm over and over again. <laughs> oh, no. And she said, what about you? I said, I'm actually wondering if I still had the telephone number of that guy who wanted to buy this boat. <laughs> it was pretty scary, that this gigantic waves and like a roller coaster and you you uh and every wave is a different shape and a different it's is it, unique literally and and you really you really have to be hand steering with a good feel for what's happening because they they get bigger kind of bigger and bigger and then they get smaller and smaller and they get bigger and bigger so it's a some kind of a sine wave of how high the waves are too and plus as ron says there's waves coming from two different directions so uh and then we'd be falling into a trough <laughs> and then and then raised up really really high <laughs> and anyway and i was seasick for the whole first three days so and that one of our crewmen also got seasick and he had to be given a pill so he could sleep and um I is the only woman on the boat and also with no experience. <laughs> I was like, I am not going to be the one that says, I'm seasick. So I was just, you know, steering with both my arms and with my legs, keeping me um, even being able to sit in the cockpit by putting both of my legs against the other side of the cockpit. And I mean, it was, it was pretty heavy <coughs> going. I mean, you were exhausted from two hours of that. So we had two hours on and then six hours off, and you were asleep the whole time in that six hours. <laughs> well, you couldn't get you couldn't get out of your berth because there was no there was no place to go, because the other berths were occupied. Or I had made this huge pressure cooker full of stews, and so we got all meals for the first couple of days. I was afraid to take the lid off it; it would flown all over the boat. Oh, I had no, no idea. It, I mean, we, we we would have painted the boat inside of the boat with goulash if, we, if we'd taken the lid off it. So we lived on candy bars and cookies and apples and bread. And and bread. bread. Yeah, oh, Kathy made four loaves of bread. So that for until this kind of stormy weather passed, uh, the last actually day or so was really calm. But that stretch along the Oregon coast, 
Northern California coast. Uh, it was really, really rough. And as I say, it was the roughest thing we ever had uh, for the next 10 years. And But we were ready for it. Now we'd been through that. And what we did to avoid rough weather was always avoid the hurricane belt because they're predictable. Uh, they're north of the equator in our summer, so they're starting right now. Caribbean, the, the Mexican coast, uh, and then they switch to the southern hemisphere. So all those islands in the Pacific get it, so on. So we just never went geographically. We just stayed away from those areas in the time of the year when they were really hot spots. And that was a piece of advice that a, a guy in a book had given, and I think it was the best thing we ever did because you don't. Those people who have been caught in hurricanes, it's the most frightening experience they've ever had. So uh, I think we had we always had good sailing. Our problem in some cases was too little wind. Mm. But that 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 big passage from uh, Washington to San Francisco that was not in the hurricane zone anyway. But and it was just that that section always has these huge waves, especially Washington and Oregon. And um, we went in August, which is the month with the least, uh, least chance of a storm. And there was, it wasn't really a storm, I don't think. It, just, it was just big waves. And we had only one tiny sail up the whole time. We couldn't even put our mainsail up. It was, we would have been going way too fast. Because you can't go over a certain speed or else you'll, the boat will flip. So you, you, you don't want to go that fast. You want to... Make sure you can control the boat. So we only had our very small staysail up, and that and that was it. But one of the good things about that trip was it was in August during the there's a certain kind of uh, star show that you can see, which Meteor. I can remember meteors and things. And uh, anyway, so we had is that what it was, or was it anyway? But we we could see that Mars. In the um, over on the right hand, you know, towards the west, we could always be kind of steering by a, a star, which was kind of a cool thing too. But um, anyway, so yeah, that was very memorable. That that seven day trip down to San Francisco. That's amazing. Were there were there places within the ten years that you you know you got off and you lived for a while, or were you always on the boat? Uh, well, first of all, Kathy came back to Frankfurt every year because she was involved with a musical with a group that did uh, musicals and she would come back. So she got a trip, paid trip back and I'd stay with the boat wherever we were. Ah, okay. Uh, but we did, we did other things as well. I mean, one memorable thing we did was we, we spent a couple months on a very remote cattle ranch in Northern Mexico in the Sierras. I mean, really remote, no roads. The nearest road was like paved road uh, was two hours away. Uh, and we were basically there as house sitters. It happened to be Americans who owned it, but the cowboys were all Indians and they lived on the ranch too. And uh, it was, I found it fascinating, uh, but we had our boat when we, the time was up. We, uh, we got back on our boat, which was down in the Gulf of California, Baja California, and we... You know, we kept sailing. We started sailing down the coast. But um, later, we didn't get off the boat quite so much. But in Venezuela, we we looked after a house on uh, Santa Margarita. 
Isla de Margarita, which is off the coast of Venezuela. And uh, we looked after this kind of house for seven months. And uh, that's when I wrote a lot of the kind of the stuff you were reading online. So, uh, but I also wrote a, like an autobiography with my children, which unfortunately, uh, it's very dangerous in Venezuela and we got robbed in the house at gunpoint and uh, tied up. But this is another story, of course. Um, and yeah, we have to know, tell that story now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were in the house and two guys jumped us. Uh, they got over the wall and the, they're all walled houses there. And, uh, and, you know, put guns to my head and then uh, tied me up hand and foot and then started going through the house. Kathy was still sleeping and I'm thinking, I hope she doesn't make a noise because they, you know, because uh, it's, you know, they have guns. And um, I really thought that was my last day on earth. But uh, anyway, oh they she did wake up, but they, she tried to say to them there's some money there, but they, they just, took her out and tied up her hands in front of her and put on the floor beside me. So anyway, they, and then they spent 45 minutes ransacking the house and we could hear them. And, uh, then they were gone with my computer. God damn it. And my, oh, I had not no. backed it up. Uh, so I'd had seven months of work basically shot and I've never been able to get back to it. <laughs> oh they, my they, God. They woke, this one guy woke, kind of shook me awake and then there's a, Done right here to my head on the right side of my head, and I, I he didn't even have a mask on or anything, and I could see his face. And there was another guy to my left, and it, and at first I, at first I thought it was somebody we knew, but I thought, well, he's shaking me pretty roughly actually. And then I realized it wasn't him, but and then I said ropa, which means dress, and also means clothes. But there's, I mean, it was hot like you are right now. And um, he then kind of pulled me up out of the bed and then put the sheet on me and kind of shoved me out onto the floor. And I could see that there was Ron there on the floor with his hands tied and a shirt over his head. And your brain, your brain doesn't really think too much, but you're sort of, oh, there's Ron. Oh, he has a shirt on his head. Oh, his hands are tied behind his back. And then you later start getting scared. You know what I mean? Your 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 brain thinks first, and then these, then your the fear shakes in your body. But they they didn't do anything to us really. But we were lying there thinking, oh my God, what if they? I guess they would have shot us by now if they're going to. And then oh, I hope that our friend who has a big German Shepherd dog, our German friend who always came every day, and he had a key to the apartment. He would just come in. He would yell. He, he was coming in. And at first I thought, I hope he comes. And then I thought, I hope he doesn't come, actually, because that dog would scare those guys. And then we might get shot by mistake because of some stupidity. But anyway, but he, our German friend did not come that day particularly much. Anyway, that was another, that was pretty horrible. But um, we... Uh, then basically it was, we just want to get out of here and get back to our boat, which was in Ecuador at the time, actually. So that was, that was the short version of that really horrible adventure. <laughs> I think, I think it's a important point to make because when you're traveling, you're on a boat, uh, you are going to other cultures and 
most of South America and even Mexico are, can be pretty dangerous. I mean, we have no idea. In fact, one of the big things I found, positive things when I moved back to Berlin, is that you could walk the streets at any time, day or night, and there's no feel threat. But in those places, like in Quito and in uh, Venezuela, so you really had to be on your toes all the time. Like New Yorkers used to say, you know, when, when it was kind of dangerous New York, if somebody near your door, just keep jogging, always carry for $20 with you and an old credit card and crap. Like, oh, you had to think about that all the time. And uh, that was the only case where we were actually threatened, but who knows how many times we were kind of threatened and didn't realize it. But that was one of the problems. The other places like Polynesia did not feel threatening at all. I mean, the people were very friendly and gracious and they're, they're fairly well off. Whereas in Latin America, so many young guys, uh, I mean, half the population is under the age of 18. Um, and, you know, they have, the wealth hasn't been shared around there. So it can be a lot more threatening. And I, I think you just have to be aware of that when you're traveling. It ain't all nice. Wow. Did you have a, a health scare in Polynesia? I thought I read that uh, in your posts. Yeah, well, we our longest passage was 37, 38 days, 37 days, I think, from Galapagos. Yeah. We, we had been in Costa Rica. We crossed the, the equator again to the Galapagos for our second time there. And we stayed 72 hours to replenish, which they always allow you 72 hours. And then we got going. And then it was 37 days to the first island, Iwa in the Marquesa Islands. That's the most easternmost group of the of French Polynesia. Well, about five days out, I had a serious TIA attack. We had just set the watches. We finished dinner. We set the watches. Suddenly it gets dark. It gets dark very quickly. And I had this feeling, you know, strange feeling and Kathy had just she was lying on the other berth to sleep with a kind of knee uh, claws so you don't get thrown out of the boat and uh, and I tried to call her and finally I got her attention she she left over the these knee claws like a like a, a young antelope <laughs> and was staring into my face and she said it was pretty horrifying because my mouth was brown like a stroke Oh, no. And uh, I was trying to say aspirin, give me some aspirin. And uh, I think I chewed 10 aspirin. Later, the French doctor laughed and said, well, one would have done. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't know that. Uh, but anyway, uh, and then it kind of went because it was temporary ischemic attack, which is like blood plaque, a plaque breaking off and hitting your brain and incapacitating. It could be from a couple of seconds to a couple of hours. This was, went by quickly, and but that was the worst attack I'd had. We were still five days short of a landfall, and there was nothing. We, we were sailing along on the trade winds, and uh, we we calculate how long it was going to take to get. And when I got there, uh, I went I went to the local friend. They have a very good medical system in in French Polynesia. They're all French doctors. Uh, and, um, the doctor said, called up, uh, Papaete, which was like the, the capital at the hospital there. And the doctors, the neurologist said, well, we only have one, uh, MRI machine. 
in the, all of these islands. So he's going to have to fly here. So the next day I got uh, the last seat on an inter-island plane and it took really half a day to get there on this to Haviland and made in between landings at other islands on the beaches. Uh, anyway, and then I was in the hospital for 10 or 11 days in Papaete uh, while they kind of put uh, blood thinners and so on. So that was basically, though, going to put an end to long passages alone because it was too scary for Kathy to be left alone with, you know, a very sick person on board. I mean, what would you do? Dead would be better, but a very sick person on board, uh, well, I think I'd rather be sick than the alternative. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you might make people, you know, if they conveniently died on the side deck, you might be able to throw the body overboard. But if you died in the cabin, there's no way you could lift that person out of <laughs> But anyway, and if you're sick, it's actually turning into a funny story. <laughs> Kathy was pretty upset. She said, well, you know, we thought of, we went through what, what could I have done if you had died or you were incapacitated? I was still able to get on with my share of keep watch keeping and so on. And well, I mean, we did have a satellite phone. You could start putting out mayday calls. Uh, said, but you know, be aware that if the Coast Guard, whatever Coast Guard comes, they're going to take take us off, and then they're going to sink the boat. You know, so wow, we don't want that, man. That's that's everything. But you were okay every time you took aspirin, so it was like it kind of seemed like you could control it, these things with the aspirin. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was interesting. You know, we never had much money to do things like. When we're in Ecuador, people say, are you doing Machu Picchu in Peru? Oh, no, that's way too expensive for us. Our form of uh, tourism was getting to know local people. For example, mm. we came friends, a guy who was an engine mechanic in Ecuador. We're still in contact with him and his family. I'm the godfather to his son. Uh, you know, and we met, then we met local people. And that, and we did travel around in the Andes. We traveled around and when we were in the Galapagos. So, and we, we did some travel, but we didn't have a lot of money. So you, the whole life was then an adventure. And it wasn't, say, oh, have you done Machu Picchu? Wow. Yeah, well, we've talked about this over and over again on this podcast. But obviously, it's, it's heavily travel-themed. And the experience I always find the most meaningful are with local people in a place, sharing a meal, sharing a drink, talking over a coffee. So it sounds like you, in, in these trips, have a lifetime of those uh, experiences. There, I, you remember those as much as those, you know, paid for excursions, because uh, you're meeting kind of genuine people who have no obligation to be nice to you, whereas the tourist industry have a nice... In, and it's not in a way we've had people say, Oh, I want to do an adventure or no an adventure vacation. Oh, I'm going to go bungee jumping. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's a thrill vacation. An adventure is when you don't know what's going to happen the next, but if you go on a paid vacation, you know exactly what's going to happen because you get a, a program. And if you don't get it, you're going to complain about it. Mm -hmm. So it's just going with the flow. And I think, uh, having no money uh, like, was very trying at times for us when so we were all jobbing around and so on. We were working online, you know, me as a translator, Kathy as a proofreader for court reporters. 
So that we did have a source of money. And then eventually I got, I started my German pension a little bit earlier. So with a big cut, but at least we really needed the money. <laughs> I have some experience with with backpacking and obviously with traveling. And there's a bit of almost like an underground economy of sorts with people either trading, you know, a floor to sleep on or or food or books or even it could be knowledge or or lessons and things like that. Did that exist at all? Like, is there a a boating community within the travel community? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially once you get away from uh, the states in Canada. I mean, there is there, but those people are doing weekend boating or coastal sailing. Once you become a world cruiser, and then we began to meet them primarily from Panama on because Europeans were coming through, East Coast Americans were coming through Panama. And then they were heading across to Polynesia because that's what they call the coconut milk run. You know, it's, it's perfect weather. Everybody wants to do That's what you dream about. And then once you've done it, then you can start doing things on a sail to Antarctica or something. We never got that far. But there are people who live on boats, still on, live on boats that we're on Facebook with. We can't, you know, we talk to them or we telephone with them. There, there is a community, and I was amazed at how, and there are a lot of skills that you need as a, as a boat owner that you might not have, like fixing your engine or putting metal, you know, tubular aluminum around the cockpit so you don't fall out at sea or sail makers or sail repair. There are people who do that. And, um, some of them, they do it for money. And I had one guy, a Polish guy now, of course he passed away, but he, I mean, I had this major engine problem and a huge diesel engine, British diesel engine from the seventies. He pulled it all out for me and put it all back in and, and it was unbelievable. He refused to take any money. But, you know, I sat with him every day, handing him wrenches <laughs> and, and keeping him entertained. Yeah. But it is a big community. It definitely is exactly what you're talking about in the, in the cruising community. And everyone, uh, you know, you don't even really know what people did before they went on their boats, you know. And it's not even that important. It's mainly where where are you from and where are you going next and stuff like that. And then... And then you see the same people in the other ports and, and it's always like you're almost seeing your best friend, um, you know. So it's very intense me- meeting with these people from different countries and everybody is very helpful. And I mean, that's one of the things, isn't it? People are extremely helpful uh, with new newbies that have just come in. And, um, you know, everybody's been in the same situation as or just the same boat, as you want to say. But, and, you know, uh, and ma- mainly everybody is very, very helpful, I would say. It's like it's like the people in the Army who only live somewhere for a very short time and they have to get involved very quickly because they're going to be moving on right away. So it's, it's very quick and intense uh, things going on there with the different cruisers. I, I always thought it was... I characterize it as a Bedouin existence. Mm. And the Bedouins are notorious for their desert hospitality. Anybody that comes is treated as a guest, an honored guest, and so on. But, of course, behind that lies the knowledge you, you, they're going to be leaving. <laughs> you know? uh, and that's the way you come in, you get to know somebody because maybe you're there for a month. You get, in, you get to know another couple or some people, singles on both. And then, like, two harbors later or 
two years later, you come in, oh, there's Bill and there's Joe's boat and so on. And it's like old home week. And, and they're friendly. You're always, you know, back and forth for sundowners and cooking for each other. You make your own entertainment. And I think it's um, the, a big disadvantage is to have a very big boat because nobody will come near you because you're too rich. <laughs> and, uh, and it could be that you're, the owner's not even there. We met a, a young couple from Mannheim who were looking after this huge catamaran, and he's the one who told us nobody ever comes near us because we're anchored farther out for one thing because we're bigger, and they probably just steer away from us. Uh, but it was this young couple who were just looking after the boat, and so we got to be good friends with them. And I think having just a, a moderate-sized boat, and we ours was uh, 34 and a half feet, plus, you know, bowsprit and rudder and so on. That I think that put us in company with uh, almost everybody who was out there. You mentioned the, the Galapagos a couple times, and, you know, I, I don't have a lot of experience on the ocean, um, but I've seen a lot of videos online. So, like, incredible, like, bioluminescent fish or, you know, uh, in different places around the world, schools of whales or dolphins. Did you have any, like, memorable experiences uh, seeing some incredible nature or, or animals out there? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, our first cruise was actually in kind of sheltered weather waters to Alaska. But there are a hell of a lot of whales. We saw orcas. We saw uh, porpoises. Um, porpoises you're seeing all the time, but uh, different kinds of porpoises and huge whales who are, because that's the current that comes down from Alaska is very cold. And so there's a lot of uh, krill and so on. And the, the same for the Humboldt current coming up from Antarctica it comes right up to Ecuador and makes a left out to the Galapagos. And those are full of fish and full of uh, people, of uh, fish hunting other fish or mammals hunting other fish. So you see lots of whales along the coast. Wow. So, and that, I mean, when they got near you, it was, you know, your heart kind of stopped. Yeah. yeah. And we did have many occasions of seeing dolphins, but one time in the Sea of Cortez, there must have been hundreds and hundreds of dolphins <coughs> that were coming from every direction and they were leaping in the air, coming toward our boat. It looked like they were all saying, hey, fellas, let's just look at this <laughs> boat. And they were just coming from all all directions. That that was really thrilling. But also when we were in the Galapagos, we uh, we went swimming in this one uh, uh, little part that had... Um, was it um, what sea, lions. sea lions? They were very small compared to sea lions of California. They look like seals. And they they are not afraid of humans, and they would uh, swim swim with you. And they would like you you go in there with a a ball or something, and they would like you know throw it back at you and play with you and stuff. But that was that was really memorable. Yeah, that's amazing. We had other. They yeah. also because our because our boat was a classic design sailboat. It had a very low sideboard. It was only like a few inches, a foot above the sea when it was straight. When it was leaning, sometimes the water was coming down the side plank, the deck. But one of the nuisances in the Galapagos was that these sea lions, they, they would just, uh, you know, leap out of the water onto your boat or they'd leap into your dinghy and smash your, your oars because they're so heavy. And, and then they shit all over the boat. And, <laughs> the hell of a mess. 
<laughs> but so we used to hang like uh, plastic bags along the railing so that maybe that would just, that seemed to discourage it. But, <laughs> but they were, I mean, you'd, you'd be lying in your bed in the morning, you look up and there's a seal or sea lion looking down through the, 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 window, the window at the top. Get out of here. Well, we did have a manta ray that was following us for about two days at least, and then it had a some kind of a bird on its back that was keeping a, a ride. Oh, a, fish. Ride. a fish. A fish, okay. And then also we had boobies, you know, those yellow and blue-footed boobies. We had We had one on our boat for a while, too, didn't we? Yeah. And, uh, taking a ride for a while. But also that luminescence that you're talking about, we've seen that lots and lots of times, and that's, <sighs> that's really incredible. It's fantastic. One of the most exciting things, and to this day, it always takes my breath away, is the stars at night. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just thinking yeah, of the stars. I mean, you'd be sitting in the cockpit because we had a period when we had this, we didn't have automatic steering because it broke down or something. The ship was always broken down. But anyway, uh, and and I was sitting there staring, at it, and it was a clear night. There was no moon. I mean, it was almost that you could read by these stars, and they were just so breathtaking. I remember I only did it once because it was just so overwhelming, and I took my binoculars, and I looked like this, and it was just like, wow. This, it was just overwhelming. And to, I, I could still picture it and feel it, how I felt when I did. I never needed to do it again to show how magnificent and powerful I was and how insignificant you are. There you are. There's nothing to be seen, no light to be seen except stars. You might uh, see the, the Southern Cross on one side and a little bit of the Dipper on the other. But seeing stars at night is just absolutely super. And if you're used to the, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, we're used to the Big Dipper being way up, <coughs> high up. And then we were sailing from uh, the Papagos to coast, um, French Polynesia. We were below, we were south of the equator. So the Big Dipper, we could still see it, but it was half under the horizon. Ah. And that is very freaky, actually. <laughs> but it, it definitely was still the, the, the Big Dipper. And also that you were very aware of the, the phases of the moon because it, it rises about 50 minutes later every night and it's getting fuller and fuller. And then uh, eventually it's, rising at sunset and setting at sunrise and that's when it's a full moon and and you know it's these things you never think about it if you live on land but i mean we always had to be watching every 15 minutes every, every you know every single day you could we could not be both sleeping all night somebody had to be awake and looking for ships and even though there were basically no ships out there but still you don't want to be run over but i remember one time and you, you, it takes it takes 20 minutes for when you first see a light of a ship. You have to see if you're on a collision course, but you have to change course if you notice you're on a collision course with a ship. But, but uh, I saw this light in the horizon, and I don't know if it was at that point, but it was this most incredibly bright light. And I was like, oh, shit, here comes a ship. You know, we've been looking for 21 days and never seen a ship. Here's a ship coming. And then he realized it was the gigantic moon coming up. And it was so bright. Still behind the horizon. Still behind the horizon. And it was, I mean, even that was kind of a freaky thing. This 
this moon rising because you're out there with nothing in the whole world but you and your boat and the stars. And um, and then to see this light coming, rising, like as, like as, like the sun rising, which was also every day a miracle that we were so happy for <laughs> to see yeah. that that sun rising every day. I think I think one of the other things, other nature, if you want to about talk nature, the the British Columbia coast and the Alaska, southeast Alaska, just stunning. And we left we left we did quite a lot of motoring because there was, wasn't the winds and it was too narrow and the, the currents were way too strong to try and sail against. But uh, when we left in April from Port Townsend, Washington, there was still snow and it was just starting on, on the coastal mountains going up there and they're pretty close to the water and these, these uh, snow peaks were melting and causing bridal veil waterfalls on all these mountains. And at event, at some point, it would all come roaring out from the side of the channel you were trying to get up. That this was had started up on the, that mountain. That was spectacular uh, scenery, and uh, all of the British Columbia and, and Southeast Alaska spectacular. And the iceberg. Yeah, we were sailing amongst icebergs, from, broken off from from uh, um, glaciers. There's beautiful aqua color. This. Undescribable color, too. When you hear these stories, like as you say them, like are you recognizing how extraordinary of an existence this is? Like you could literally make a movie or like a very well-selling book about this. Well, yeah, yeah, it does really feel extraordinary. We knew it was kind of for us. It was this is the way we live, so we were kind of used to it. And after you, you know, after you've seen few mountains, you could be, you know, get blasé about it. But uh, I realized that you can never get totally blasé about it. You've seen a hundred of them because it's just so stunning. Or or just the islands in, in French Polynesia is so incredibly beautiful. Each each little group is different. The Society Islands, the Marquesas. I think that was... that We were always aware of how beautiful things were and how lucky we were to be there. Even... When we sometimes wonder, I wonder where we have enough food, money to buy any food. You know, so we have to do a little fishing here. But part of part of how wonderful that whole experience was also was meeting people from these countries. Like you would never, I mean, I don't think we would be so easily in French Polynesia in our life anymore. But it's a unique thing for them to have all these boaters coming from different countries too. And and they often it's very interesting to meet these people who um, who've been living on these islands for you know centuries, their families and everything. And we went to by the time we got to New Zealand, which we sailed to from Tonga, we our engine was totally dead, and we and we just sailed with no engine, which is no big deal because you're supposed to be able to sail with no engine, but but. Um, so when we met some Maori people there in New Zealand, we could say, we sailed to here from Polynesia in the same way that your ancestors did in a wooden boat, only sails and no engine. And that was like a thing that could bond us, you know. And anyway, so I think that was just meeting Polynesians and Tongans and people from Ecuador and 
Mexico and all these really, really interesting people of the world. And we only saw a quarter of the globe. You know, we didn't even get all the way around. Do you think that you might try to put those, I guess you could call them almost diary entries, right? Those blog entries into a book? Well, I did, I did write one uh, on our trip to Alaska. And, um, a literary agent said, oh, I really love this. I'm going to get it published. But he never did. And I didn't know how to go about doing it. And there was this self-publishing was just coming along. But I never did it. I can send it to you if you want. <laughs> he, read, he read it through and you know, gave me some advice about how I should revise it. And there's kind of a finished product. I, people have often said it, but it's very, I really enjoyed the, the, the expanded log type thing. So not only we did this today, we did that today, but, oh, here's a, a whole, you'll, no, here's a whole article on how I repaired this. Or how, I mean, I found them, they were being published as a blog and, Quite a lot of, I wasn't a huge following, but some people, when I would ask them, what part of the blog do you like? And, oh, I really enjoy it when you're working on the boat. And you explain, I really love that. So I, you know, I'd write some more about that. I wrote about politics and I had some articles actually about Latin American politics being new. You see everything better than anybody who's ever lived there. But, uh, and it was during the pink tide in, you know, Chavez and, uh, um, all around South America, the pink tide was in full flow at that time. So it was a really kind of interesting time. We were in uh, Ecuador for a presidential election. Uh, and uh, I think it's kind of gone to shit now, but uh, it was a really uh, positive and uh, optimistic time. For South yeah, I'll share a, a, a small anecdote, I guess, but some of those things, like a presidential election, it may maybe seem routine to most people. Like, well, why would that be exciting? But I had been in, in Taipei City in Taiwan when they were trying to pass major legislation in 2018 for um, gay marriage rights. And it, to be present for that on the election day and then sort of the, the crushing feeling when that didn't get passed the next day uh, amongst the people I was talking to but also seeing these bizarre, they were doing these campaigns like the day before and the day of, kind of the thing that you can't do here in the States, like campaign outside of a, a polling place. But these, these trucks would go by with these big banners and megaphones. And I was at a night market. I'm like, what's going on? And people are running up to it, high-fiving the guy. And they're like, oh, there's an election in two days. And you know, maybe to some people that doesn't seem super exciting, but to me, it was so, so interesting to be like immersed into that scenario while it was happening. I, mean, I remember when we were in the small coastal town of Bahia de Caracas, and that's where the boat was in an estuary, uh, and where we left it when we traveled in the Andes and so on. But um, the, the major candidates came there, so we saw them, and it was after, it was when... Uh, well, they, it was the Korea. That Korea. Was Korea. Yeah. Korea became the 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 great white hope, uh, and he was I mean, the women were all beside themselves because he was so guapo, you know. <laughs> but uh, the 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 biggest banana, you know, magnate, and uh, he was running as well. He was there. And so, but the day of the election, I spent a lot of time looking because I wanted to see is there any is there anything 
for people to fear when they're going to it. Are they, you know, are they going to be intimidated? So nothing. It was just it was like a party day. Uh, but this was a small town. It wasn't Quito or, or Guayaquil, so maybe that made a difference. But you know, just days like that, and then talking to uh, the people we knew in our broken Spanish about what they were hoping for this and what you know, I thought that was interesting. I did. I just wanted to say because it goes back to the early thing. Uh, how did you do this? Because I imagine a lot of your listeners listen to it, your podcast, because how can I do something like that? Exactly. Is that, so, and the, I, I learned that the, the hardest thing to do is throw off the lines, you know, um, and you often, a 20 year old might have trouble doing it. If you get kicked out of your job and you're already sick of it, maybe this is the time to do it. And you better do it before you get too old and have a CIA attack and you can't do it anymore. My brother already told me, I was turning 60, he says, you better do it. Look, he's been ill and he's still around 20 years later, but he's, uh, he said, look at me, I couldn't do it. Now do it. And that's it. Just do it. It's not, it's, it's throwing off the line, saying goodbye to everybody, getting the house rented out or sold or what do I do about kids? I, I can't tell you how often I heard people say, oh, I wish I could do it. I said, well, you can do it. It's not expensive. You know, the boat we bought was totally seaworthy. And uh, we loved that boat. It was, I mean, it was so solid. Uh, but it wasn't expensive. And uh, I imagine I worked out over not counting food or actual diesel. Uh, I, we lived for about 5000 a year. Uh, assuming a certain sale price and currency exchange, because we bought it in dollars and sold it in New Zealand dollars, and so there were changes. But it'd been roughly five thousand a year that we lived on that boat, or except for food and and buying some diesel and so on. We tried not to because it was so expensive. So it is possible to do it, and often you need a kick in the ass to do it. You know, some sort of crisis, maybe a divorce, maybe uh, losing your job, and so on. And I can understand that. I was kind of in the same position. I would probably never have quit the investment bank. But we all got put out on the street because the bank had problems. So, so that was the time. To, and it was too old to really go back into that business. So there I was. And then somebody comes along like Kathy and says, how about this? And you do it. And then you find out, oh, it wasn't nearly half as bad as I thought. And all the problems were different ones than you expected. And I, I always think of this wonderful T-shirt a friend used to wear. It said, "99% I, worry works. 99% of the things I worry about never happen." Hmm. <laughs> wow. I think maybe I, I don't know if there's a better way to to wrap the conversation than that. Um, I think that 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 sort of puts a bow on it. Uh, I, I talk about all the time, like the metaphor I use is like taking the plunge, right? Like if you imagine <laughs> the metaphor of just, just doing it, throwing out the line, being the cold pool and the nice warm air and the ledge that you're on is your family and societal expectations and what are people going to think and security and stuff like that. And I, so, oh, yes. yeah, so I mean, I, I say the same things is just do it. Just take the plunge. You could always go back to, you know, the standard expectation for what most people want out of life for you. Um, so yeah, I think that maybe is like a perfect way to cap this. And I'll say that I would love to continue this conversation 
in person next time when the world returns to normal and I'm back on the road and maybe I could uh, buy you both a coffee or a beer and we can we can do a part two. In yeah. Berlin, right? Come, you come to Berlin. Yeah, <laughs> we'd, be, we'd love to see you. Yeah. Come. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you for interviewing us. I hope I hope it's uh, interesting. You can put together an interesting podcast. Oh, I, th- I think I think a hundred percent. That is a wrap on episode 177 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks again to Sarah. Thanks again to Kathleen and Ronald for coming on this episode. I had a really great time listening to their stories, and I really would love to do a part two in the very near future. Got a couple more recordings going on this week, so you got some stuff to look forward to here. So thank you, Voyagers, for tuning in. As always, please, please, please take care of each other, and I will catch you next time.